beautiful. You just you have to be the most handsome. You have to be number one in everything. And you know what's interesting is you know you see this in children. You know, especially with siblings, where uh, you know the child is happily playing with his car, and then all of a sudden the sibling comes along and is playing with a doll, and all of a sudden they're fighting over the doll. What's what's going on here? You know, they have, the one child has to have the doll because it just has to have it. <laughs> So you know what's interesting. I mean, we kind of adjust them, but but that, you know that's that's a, that's a simple understanding of, of pride. I mean, it's this it's this kind of consuming nature. It is it is like a black hole. And then you know the job as you read this is to kind of extrapolate from those childish experiences and then kind of play it out in terms of adult experiences, which of course will kind of hit closer to home. And Lewis, you know, brings up the point is that, you know, I, I think one of the things about pride, and I, I might get to that later, is, um, you know, are you ever generally happy for people when something nice happens to them? Um, or is your initial thought about, like, how you didn't get that or how, you, you know, you wish you had that? And if, if your initial thought is about yourself, then there's a form of pride lurking. So, of course, everyone is prideful. And so, the, you know, the, the challenge of us as Christians is to kind of to recognize it and then bring it to light to, to deal with it. Now, also, too, pride uh, enjoys power. Um, again, that's, that's just another way of making yourself number one. And it's, uh, it's hostile to everyone. So you can't have relationships. I mean, a relationship of equal, a relationship of giving and receiving. It's of manipulation and coercion. So the, you know, the ultimate form of pride would be either a sociopath or psychopath. Completely uh, cut off from another person. All right. So, what happens to the to the pro, to the proud? It, they always look down at people. Now, one of the interesting things is, though, is that there's a, 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 a well, I think he brings up a diabolical form of pride. But you know, when you look down at people, you know, if it's, the whole image of looking down is very important for us to kind of contemplate. Um, when you look down at someone, of course, you know, there's an image. You have to be bigger or taller than someone, right, to, in order to look down at someone. But there's another form of looking down on someone, and that is yourself, which I think can be a form of pride. Because when you look down, not only are you looking down at others, but you can look down at yourself, and by looking down at yourself, you become the measure in a backwards way of all things, in a very negative way. So... um, I think that's important for us to kind of contemplate because, again, that goes to that question I asked earlier. If you are always measuring yourself against another person and seeing yourself as being better, of course, that's, that's pride. But the idea of measuring yourself against another person and then being always the loser rather than the winner, 
I feel, I feel like that's the same exercise with different outcome. And what Lewis is arguing, and what I would argue, is that you want to get rid of that whole scenario, period. And he brings that up at the end. It's far, it's far better to, or I'm sorry, um, at the end of the uh, chapter on charity. It's far better to think about God's charity than your own charity. <laughs> because then your eyes are completely taken off yourself, period. So, um, so always looking down at people, obviously what happens to the pro- idol worshiper, and then virtuous to a point. And I, I found, found that very interesting, and I had not contemplated that before. Where pride will destroy other sins. So you can imagine yourself growing in virtue, right? You become less greedy, or uh, what? I, the examples that he, he showed, shows in the book. But then he... Um, says that's all in service to pride. So pride can literally be competitive against other sins. And I, I find that th- that, is a, that is a dangerous thing because you can start measuring your growth as a Christian and then become self-secure in your own work, in your own, in your own measurement. Um, okay. So, but with that, though, there's these possible misunderstandings and that was helpful, too. But um, pleasure in being praised. It's not pride. Now, what was the distinguishing factor about taking pleasure in being praised? What was the one thing, you know, versus, like what was the good thing and what was, what was the thing you need to watch out for? Nancy. Yeah, the good thing was if you really want to please somebody else, you know, if you're, the idea is that, you know, you have, Fulfilled what this other person wanted. Yeah, it, it's fulfillment in the action, not in the identity, right? You take pleasure in what you did and not so much who you are. And that's actually really great because what would be the, what would be the, uh, the alternative? You know, guilt and shame, right? When you are guilty, you've done something bad, but when you're shamed, you are bad. And this is where I think sometimes when people are shamed, right, they try to overcome their shame by being actually like a a sense of pride. They don't care about what other people say about them. But of course, that's what Lewis describes as the diabolical form of pride, is that they, again, they've pushed away people so much as a defense mechanism that they are unto themselves, over against people. Um, okay, and that's, that's why the distinction between who you are and what you do, and, and then I quote Lewis there on page 126, the real black diabolical pride comes when you look down on others so much that you do not care what they think of you. Of course, it's very right and often our duty not to care what people think of us. If we do so for the right reason, namely because we care so incomparably more than uh, what God thinks. But the proud man has a different reason for not caring. All right, Mark chapter 8. This was last week's gospel reading. But if you have your Bible, uh, I would turn to it because this, is, this Bible passage is, is really instructive on, on pride. Uh, so Jesus... Obviously, Jesus is humble, right? I mean, that's kind of self-explanatory. If you read the Gospels, he's not one of full of pride. 
And what he does here, or what I would argue, is he is showing us how one without pride, how you receive your identity, how you actually care about what people think. But first and foremost, not from a negative, but from the positive. You you don't care what people think about you because you care more about what God thinks about you. But by caring about what God thinks about you, you actually are caring about what other people say about you. Okay. So Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, geographically speaking, is very important because this is a, uh, a, a big deal. This is like you're, you're walking into a power center. And in the Gospel of Mark, geography plays a, an essential role. So the setting in which Jesus does things speaks to the meaning of, of the passage. So when Jesus, so Mark chapter 8, I'm sorry, verse 27. Um, so when he goes into this, this uh, center for power and identity, Jesus is saying, okay, I'm in this moment where politicians, the powerful are. And is he going to these people to ask, who do you say I am? Well, the answer is no, right? So we'll keep reading. And on the way, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? So he's on this way to the Caesarea Philippi. The question, who do people say I am, is in reference to where he's going. So who are these people out there saying I am? Oftentimes, uh, well, again, I'm strictly speaking in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we just we kind of overlook this, right? And we just, hey, who do people say I am, kind of gener- generically speaking. But that's, uh, that's not specifically what Jesus is, is dealing with. That's part of it, but that's not the only thing. Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. Those are all very positive things, right? I mean, John the Baptist has a huge following. Obviously, Elijah, he's kind of a big deal. One of the other prophets, meaning you know, one of the prophets of old who are part of the canon of the Old Testament, who you know they, they read about in the synagogue. So these are wonderful, great things. Okay, a person who's prideful then would bask in these wonderful accolades. These are, these are the good things. These now are part of what Jesus is looking for. I mean, if if you're you know if you're a prideful person, the prideful person would be stop. Good. Okay, I've received what I need. I'm, I'm better than everybody else. Unless you're really diabolical and you don't want to be John the Baptist. But being Elijah and the prophets, that's like a big deal in the Gospel of Mark. Okay. But he doesn't stop there. He's, and, then, uh, and then he asks them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So what Jesus is doing here is, is really helpful in our age, we, when we understand ourself, we always understand ourselves kind of as a, uh, first of all, as an individual. I mean, our primary understanding of how we see ourselves is individualistically. Uh, when I say we, kind of Western society. So we always see it in terms of psychological terms. I can, I can kind of decide who I am. You know, if I try hard enough. Well, in Jesus' time, that is absolutely not the case. And for most 
kind of societies, even throughout the world, um, you have your you kind of have your private identity, which is kind of which could be then understood individualistically, set apart from others. Um, or then you can have this public self, which at times then can be hypocritical towards your, you know, your private self. It can be this way, one way. Or then you can have this other one, that kind of a collective self or a community understanding of who you are. And Jesus is confessing this right here, that sort of identity. That he, is ta- he wants to know what these, pe- these specific people say about him because that actually tells him who he is. What other people think about him is actually important to how he understands himself. It's a very peculiar way. I mean, it's very different than how we understand ourselves, except for when we are shamed. Oftentimes when people inform us who we are, it's under shame, right? Like, I, I don't think I'm worthy because mom and dad used to always tell me I wasn't worthy. So what Jesus is doing is, is the, it's, it's one of these uh, antidotes to that sort of thing, is that he is actually uh, acknowledging those who love him, and it will speak honestly to him, and that is his disciples. So at this point in the book, well, here, I'm sorry, uh, we can go um, earlier in chapter 8. Where is it, chapter 5? Or it could be right after this. <laughs> oh, no, chapter 3, holy smokes. Not really that close, but all right, it's, it's earlier. Uh, uh, so chapter 3, verse 31. So what happens in uh, this section is uh, he's realigning his, collect- his group. Okay? And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, so who is he, who is he actually looking at? Who are the ones who sit at his feet? The disciples. You know, I always encourage people to think about reading the Bible like a movie. So you've got a picture in your head. Uh, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother, my brother, sister, and mother. So what happens is, is that Jesus is um, taking what kind of culturally is understanding as the group, which is your family, and Jesus is now actually transformed or redefined what that group is according to whose will, God's will, not, not his own will. And so when he asks those disciples, who do you say I am, he actually is seeking self-understanding about himself. Now, of course, that's peculiar, right? Because Jesus is the Christ. He's all-knowing. He's God. And he should know this stuff already. You shouldn't really have to ask people. But, of course, Jesus is not just God, but man, man and God, fully man, fully God. And so these are one of the, this is a very peculiar circumstance. It gets even more peculiar in Mark chapter 13 when uh, the disciples ask, when are these things going to happen? And he says, only the Father knows, not even the Son. So Jesus already acknowledges the fact that there is this, there is this, there is this um, humanity to him 
that he is, he is still receiving even from his relationships and also from the Heavenly Father. That does not discount his divinity, but that demonstrates how much he is like us. And since he is like us, then he can relate to us in all things. Okay, so now back to the, 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 the kind of this antidote of pride. So what Jesus does is that when he asks someone, again, not just anybody, not these people, but specifically these people, who, who do you say I am? He is precisely not prideful. <laughs> he, is the, he, is, he is the embodiment of, of humility. Now what's interesting and this goes back to this kind of self-understanding of Jesus, is he says to them, don't tell anybody. Okay? This is just a little tangent here, but he says don't tell anybody not to make himself prideful. Like, oh, okay, yeah, you're right, but keep it to yourself, you know, because I'm really not that big of a deal. No, no, he, he does that because he actually wants this understanding to be truthful. And in the Gospel of Mark, the point where you really know who Jesus is as Son of God and as the Christ is um, at the crucifixion. So he wants to make sure that people, when people first see who Jesus is as the Son of God and the Christ, it's, it's, it's in his, his crucifixion, not before that. Because that's the temptation of the crowds already. You see this in John especially. You are the Christ. Oh my gosh, we're going to make you king and you're going to you know, kick the Romans out. Strictly political. And of course, we know politicians. They are generally the most humble people, right? <laughs> so, um, okay, so, so this is one of those things where I think in Mark chapter 8, it really shows us how we identify ourselves and how if, uh, walking in the steps of Christ, we are seeking who we are, not based on, obviously, um, on, on being better than other people, but precisely seeking and remaining humble or in service to others. Uh, again, not to everybody. So, and this is the great thing, too, is that Jesus doesn't annihilate himself, which would be the opposite. Like when I talked about how you, know, you look down upon yourself so much, then you're actually erasing yourself. You're annihilating yourself. God's not interested in doing that. He's interested in reestablishing uh, the right way of, of understanding yourself and others. So, he, uh, I, which I, I, this is very instructive. And the Gospel of Mark, just in general, kind of deals with this. Um, okay, so you seek others, others who actually love you, but primarily who loves you? The Heavenly Father. And so you, you rest on what the Heavenly Father says to you. And the Heavenly Father primarily calls you the one I loved, or beloved. Again, which means then you are the receiver, which means then you're primarily understood uh, as, as, as uh, uh, quite hu- you're humble, in a sense. The fact that you, you're self-aware as being humble then is a sign that you're not quite that humble. But, so as you, if, you, if you understand yourself primarily as one who's uh, received their identity from God, and from loved ones, then that then keeps you within the mix or that matrix of community, the Heavenly Father and His His uh, Holy Church. 
All right, so, um, but of course then, now, because we're all in together, we can say, hey, great job taking care of so-and-so. That was just so great. And you're saying that not to puff the person up, but to acknowledge the reality that God's love is active in the community, right? And, that, and then that's how you practice. Well, we'll get to that in a little bit, but okay. All right, warm-hearted uh, admiration isn't, isn't pride. Distinguishing between admiration and worship, of course. Um, you can be proud of your kids unless you worship your children, unless they become the means in which you under, uh, uh, identify yourself. Again, uh, you know, if you didn't get a chance to read that book a couple years ago and it's sitting on your shelf still, uh, Strange Idols, pick it up because, I mean, I'm... I think I'm just echoing all that certain chapters from all that. Okay. Okay, now the reason, oh, now the great misunderstanding too, which I found very interesting, reasons why God forbids pride and wants humility is not because he, he, he's prideful himself. Um, and that, we have to see that in Mark chapter 10. Uh, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Yeah. Which Okay, so we already see that in Mark chapter 8 when he asks, hey, who do you say I am? He's putting himself in service to others. And if you just, so you just keep reading here, and, and you, you find that, because uh, then it, uh, Mark chapter 11, then there's like a hinge, it switches, goes to the triumphal entry, Holy Week. So it's this penultimate, I'm sorry, it's ultimate, it's a fulfillment of how Jesus is in service to man uh, in that, those verses. So Jesus reveals in his teaching, hey, I'm, I'm here to serve, not to be served. Okay, and then I'm going to go into Jerusalem and die for you. So, okay. Oh, being humble doesn't mean being greasy, uh, swarmy, uh, a swarm, or a greasy or swarmy person, which I, I didn't, I didn't quite understand. I mean, I understand what he said, but uh, like I wouldn't have described it that way, right? I mean, someone who's like all goes around and says, "Oh, I'm nothing," you know, who's always self-deprecating, who's always, um, you know, making a point to say that he's not anybody. <laughs> I, I, is that greasy and swarmy? I don't know. I think he meant like not taking pride in the way that. Well, you know, like, you have to be so the opposite of being nice-looking and presenting yourself so well that you actually... Are, are greasy swarmy. Yeah. yeah, gross. Oh, okay, good. This is good. This is great. Yeah, that's... You're right. You're right. That's exactly... Yeah. I took it more on an emotional level. Yeah. Aaron, were you going to say something? Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Like he has all these bad motives. Yeah, right. But he just wants everybody to see all the time. He's always putting himself down. Right. Everybody's like always irritated with him. Like, no, you're okay. You're you know? Yeah, right. He's always into into making himself look really humble. Yeah, right. And it's actually like really false. That's that's so interesting because it's manipulative, right? It's uh, it's like his uh, the power play. Where you're, you're, you're able to move people like toy soldiers. That, that's what C.S. Lewis says. 
That's so good. So, uh, yeah, so let, I mean, when you, when you put yourself down in order to get people to say something to you, saying, uh, I, you know, again, I don't think I've ever left grade school in terms of, like, emotional experiences. I always think about art class as a kid. And there was a certain individual, he or she, uh, who always said, oh, this is so terrible. And then all my classmates would go around and say, it's not terrible. And I got to the point, I mean, I still remember I was in fourth grade, Mrs. Stay, my teacher, Vicki Stay. Um, and I remember, I'm like, yeah, it's crappy. Well, I didn't say that. I said, yeah, oh, yeah, it's terrible. Because I was just so tired of it. And this person, he or she, looked at me and thought, like, I just was like, killed the cat. I was so tired of it because I was so sick and tired of people coming around this person and being like, oh, no, it's so good. It's so great. I felt so manipulated. So fake. Yeah, so this is great. Right. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Um, I have to admit, I mean, there's somebody who popped in my head instantly when I read uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, description of that. And I, I think my wife might have the same one. But I, I think of uh, Pastor John Kleinig. It's, it's exactly what you said, Aaron. Uh, he... You don't think about how he's humble, but you think about how wonderful he it is to be in his presence because he actually cares about what you have to say. Like he just it it, it you it's infectious. Like he draws you out of yourself to 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 share and you're you believe and you know that he's actually receiving it with like genuine love. I mean, it's, it's 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 a wonderful thing. So, yeah, Holly. I was going to say, and he could be like, our interpretation leaving the losing blood that he wouldn't bother to notice it because he's so focused on what he's Yeah. He's truly not affected by the Oh, I wrote it down. Yeah, John Clinton, yep, there. Um, yeah. So uh, that's exactly right. So I, I found I found that I found that, that that's great. That's exactly right. It's, it's such a like a short description of a home. Like he spent all this time talking about what it means to be prideful, and then he has like this one like three sentences about what it means to be humble, and it encapsulates it perfectly. So, but you know, becoming humble, I, I thought about like practice, because in charity and hope, he talks about kind of practicing things, practicing charity. You know, in hopes that your affection, your feelings will <laughs> show, you know, catch up to your actions. But um, so I thought about it becoming humble, and of course, the first step in becoming humble, as he said, was acknowledging that you're pro- that you're not. I mean, that you're proud. Luke eighteen uh, is really important. So let's let's kind of just turn to there real quick. It is the the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. 
The reason why I, I thought of this is because of there's actually a twofold danger in the parable. One is very obvious. The one is very uh, diabolical. It's just, it's very subtle. Diabolical might not be the right word, but um. Oh, oh I, we read it in chapel, but I'll read it again. So Jesus uh, also told this parable. To, so eighteen verse nine. Sorry. Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So that are prideful. I mean, that's uh, Mary in the Magnificat. When Jesus comes, right, he's going to bring down the prideful and exalt the humble. So this is just in line with what the introduction or the, the beginning of Luke is all about. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, that's, that's instructive, he's by himself. Why is he by himself? <laughs> so you're presuming that other people have separated from him. That, that could be true, but there also could be another reason why he's by himself. He's too good for everybody. Um, okay, he prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Who, uh, what's, so, I mean, this is basic prayer 101. Like when you pray, like what, who should be like the, like the, the main character in your prayer? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, his prayer is, um, he apparently didn't go to confirmation class. <laughs> but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. If I tell you, I mean, I, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, obviously the, the one is, uh, you know, if you spend so much time acknowledging what you've done to the detriment that you... So this, this is one of these things where that it defines who you are, right? And that's, that's the danger of where um, he, he talks about how uh, th- that pleasure in being praised is not, a, not pride unless that is the measure of who you are. Like you keep it, you keep it about the action, not, not about the identity. So this is who this is who the Pharisee is. He's he's defined his exclusiveness, his betterness as who he is, which of course is prideful. And okay, so that's don't be that way. I, I think everyone who reads that would be like, oh, okay, I get that. The thing about the the uh, tax collector is is that what we see this as, oh, okay, in order to be humble, I need to be like the tax collector, which means I need to go around what telling people how much of a damn sinner I am. Which goes to what Aaron had said, right? It now turns your sinfulness as, your, as a thing of who you are, which, of course, is not who you are. Right? You're a beloved child of God. You are a forgiven sinner. So this is the, this is the subtle danger. Be like, okay, in order for me to be humble, I need to make sure that, A, I, you know, I go around telling people I'm a damn sinner and, you know, I'm not unworthy. And then, and then how I see myself primarily 
as a, as a sinner, as a damned sinner. But that's not exactly what's happening here. Right? He, he understands himself as a forgiven sinner, one who is justified by God's mercy. So that is, again, so now you've, you've you sought your identity from another, the one who actually loves and cares for you, and then that puts you in humbleness. But it's one of these is a subtleness where, where people who uh, acknowledge their sin can't actually let that sin go. They, they keep that around in order to make sure, in a kind of a very terrible way, to understand themselves still, I'm unworthy. There's no That's right. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the one is, uh, obviously, we feel good about uh, not being that way. You know? Well, again, which is kind of a strange thing. Right? But then the other one, it's, it's, it's such a pitiful, terrible thing. Right? I mean, it's just, it, both of them are just terrible. <laughs> Anyways, I, uh, but the, the reality, though, is, is that we, you, you, you could be both of these people in a matter of, well, I don't know, a morning, Sunday morning. <laughs> so, um, so it's this constant receiving. It's this constant seeking from the Heavenly Father and from uh, our loved ones. So it's, so of course then, well, okay, now let me get, okay, that's it. So that, that helps us understand how we acknowledge that we're, we're prideful. Martha. Right. Yeah. And, you know, so I know people struggle with sins that they can't let go of. Right. They may not verbalize it. I mean, I understand if you go around saying, oh, I'm this hideous person. Right. But they still have that internal struggle. Right. That, that I still, I mean, how do you... Yeah, well, that's right. So, so this is where... Uh, well, so the, the outwardly one, I think, would be the classic example would be someone like a, uh, maybe some, well, okay, never mind. You, you, got, you got it. The outward example, but the inward example is, is one of those uh, realities. It's one of the burdens that, that Christ bears with you. And so it's, it can't be necessarily eradicated out of one's life, you know, because... The devil is active, and your sinful nature is active. However, in in the mere Christianity, Lewis is is basically trying to say that what happens on your inside can also be influenced by what you do on your the outside, and so that you know, kind of practicing these things will then help you help you on some level, not entirely, begin then to to let go of whatever that is that's, that's uh, affecting you. Um, you know, for a lot of people, though, not letting go is, uh, especially like when we talk about guilt and shame, especially shame, you know, it's kind of like, well, what, do you, what kind of action, what, what, what's the uh, virtue versus the vice, right? With the vice is I'm shameful, but what do I do in order to overcome that? 
so much of it is emotional or psychological. Well, well, yeah, I think, oh no, um, we get into hope then, because the hope is, is the hope, like we, we do these things in hope of what Christ promises us, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. We'll, we can talk about that in a minute. Was there a hand up over here? Yeah. Yeah, okay, right. So, so like, for instance, I think, uh, so I, I listed out a couple here. Uh, well, so first acknowledging you're, you're proud. Well, that means confessing. I mean, actually saying it. Confessing, acknowledging it. But not just confessing, but also receiving the absolution that God promises. Okay, so, so the habit of, of, of going to confession and receiving absolution. Sunday morning, private, both, both and. Um, and then, I, so then I have one start listening, being comfortable with other people's voices or being comfortable with silence. So, so, so I mean, practice listening, active listening. Now I'd, I'd, okay, so you can Google that. How do I actively listen? I mean, it's your pot. I mean, I, th- I think we... I, th- I think we I think we talked about uh, uh, that in terms of uh, well yeah Pastor Kleinig, but also didn't Pastor Bruzik I know I do this with the confirmation kids but like didn't Pastor Bruzik talk about prayer a couple years ago? And uh, you know the first thing is you need to listen. You're not talking. You need to be listening. So um, which then goes to hope too, Martha is that part of listening is also then praying, and praying is a an, enac- an enactment of hope, like it's the embodiment of hope, but one of the things. So, um, so, so when you, we start listening, what do you do, Aaron, is that you, you precisely favor the other over yourself. Now, again, you, you, I mean, so active listening. So, you, you know, you, you practice, right? You, you, you mimic the body posture. You listen. Try your best not to think of the line that's coming back, which is very hard, right? I'm actually not listening. I'm just waiting for you to stop talking so I can talk. Okay, that, that would be stuff that, that, that's not listening. So, uh, so active listening would be able to, I heard what you said, and now I'm going to say it back to you. That's, I mean, that's listening. And if the person says, well, that's not actually what I said, then... You, you try your darndest to say, okay, help me understand, rather than, yeah, that's what you said, and I'm right, and you're wrong. Maybe not, maybe not to that level, but... Karn. Uh, my father is a lot like... He built like a mark in his head, and um, he was... He was like, walking around, he was and... Mm-hmm. 
Association. Yeah, right. Yeah, because he doesn't like to listen. He wants to be in control or what? <laughs> so he likes to talk. Well, you know, um, you know, part of that too, though, part of listening, so then I go is practicing gratitude, um, which then, I, you know, uh, I can't remember when I did this or maybe, but um, you practice gratitude, which means actually make it a habit to say thank you to others and to God. Like, say thank you. Write a letter. Say thank you. And try your best to actually say thanks. Not, what's that? What Exactly. <laughs> and, and so that takes practice. I mean, that, that takes precision. I, I, I'm kind of maybe overplaying it because I don't think people have to be so calculated. But maybe, maybe we do. I don't know. Maybe, you know, when I say thank you, maybe I'm, I'm saying thank you. And in my thankfulness, I'm hoping that they recognize my thankfulness. Right? So that so yeah so we're practicing these habits, again all under, uh, so that's why I put confession first. We're confessing these things as we go along. And with the hope that God's forgiveness and absolution will then help us to enact these other things: listening, saying thank you, and then being joyful for others. That there will actually be. That those will be real. Those will be a reality. Holly. This is still the example, but every Christmas I'm honestly humbled that people actually think of us as God's family and they give us whatever it is, you know, chocolate cookies, gift cards, whatever. It's such a crazy time. That's right. So whenever I think, you know, I write thank you notes for everybody that just stepped in. She signs it all of our names, by the way. I hope. <laughs> but anyway, just even in that practice of saying thank you, you know, it still reminds me how humbled I am that people are actually thinking of other people aside from themselves. Yeah, right. I, yeah. Um, yeah, Mary. Right. You know, and so when people say thank you, to always, I mean, it's nice to hear, thanks for doing this. Thanks for right. This. But it's easier to go, oh, well, isn't that cool that I do this? But that, so the gratitude thing is such a huge deal to always, like, click into place, go, but I do this not for that. Right. I do it because I am so grateful for all the stuff. For all the, yeah, so it's the outpouring of, of thanks. And that, that like, yeah. I mean, the reason that people outpour to you at Christmas time is because we are so grateful to have you here. And so. Well, see, I'm going to have to go to confession now, Mary. <laughs> you don't say those things. <laughs> no, yeah, and, and, and so actually, yeah, I didn't think about this. In, yeah. I didn't think about it until Mary just said this, but, you know, practicing saying you're, you're welcome. You know, I think, I think we. I, I, so I've talked about this before. Where people will say, "Ah, it's no problem." Mm-hmm. Don't say that. I, it just comes out of my mouth all the time, and I'm always like, "Oh, you are welcome." 
Because you know what? If it's not so, so when you say it's not a problem, what are you actually devaluing? Well, not just yourself, but also their thanks. And you don't need to say thank you. Now, I actually someone has said this to me one time. Don't tell me what to say. When I said that, oh, you don't need to say thanks. Don't tell me what to do. I'm like, you are right. That's right. Now, this person who did this was a friend of mine, and it was one of those moments where I would say, who do people, who do you say I am? Um, because they were right. They were right. They're like, yeah, don't, that's right. Don't tell me what to do. I just rejected everything. I mean, it's, just, it's such an interesting thing that we do. And then, uh, so yeah, so then last, practice being happy for others. Make it a habit to say words of joy to others. And because um, practicing gratitude makes joy. You, you, you aren't, you, you, you don't practice gratitude because you're joyful, but it's the other way around. Gratitude actually begets joyfulness. You, you know, so think about that for a while. But, um, so Aaron, so this is what I'm getting at, is that these practices, these outward practices, will affect our inner soul. Now again, I've got I to stress this so much, is that your first act is one of confession. This is so important for us. Because when we don't start this out with confession, it, it immediately makes it all about us. But like Mary said, this is very helpful what Mary said was, so, so, so think about it. When I, when I make this confession, again, genuinely, I'm not, I'm not, you're just not mouthing the words, but you're making a, a confession that this is hard. I, I think about myself too much, Lord. Please forgive me. When God forgives us, That is the outpouring of the great gift. I mean, this is a great gift that God has done for us. He has forgiven us our sins. And because of this outpouring of God's mercy, we are able to do these things. I mean, and so, I guess those last three um, are just an outpouring of God's forgiveness. Well, there we go. We made that easier to understand. I, uh, um, so yeah, I, and Lewis, then, in charity and in hope, he kind of he, he kind of plays off of this, especially with charity, charity being love. You actually have to do acts of love. And sometimes when you don't feel like it, you should just do it anyways, and then with the hope that your insides would catch up with your actions. It's a very peculiar way of understanding things. But I always, I always think about it this way. Uh, again, I'm not leaving elementary school. So, you know, I teach, we, we teach our, at our house, we teach our children certain prayers. Prayers that I don't really understand yet either. The fullness of such prayers. But I still teach my children to say the Lord's Prayer. I mean, the ultimate prayer that takes a lifetime to understand is the Lord's Prayer. But, I don't say to my children, you know, you don't quite understand it yet, so you're not going to say it. You're not going to do it. You have to understand what prayer is in order to actually pray. I, I don't think that's true. You start praying, and then you will begin to understand it. I, I think that that's analogous to what Lewis is talking about with respect to, to practicing the Christian life. Is sometimes you do this, and you will begin to learn it after you start doing it. Um, yeah, and I, I think that has to do with, you know, 
pride and humility. Okay, charity. Uh, I don't. I don't. We're just going to blaze through this because I, I want to kind of kind of get to hope. But um, charity. Uh, oh, um, if you have a King James Version Bible, First Corinthians chapter thirteen. It's the love chapter, unless you're reading in the King James Version, which it is the charity chapter. I used to teach uh, Sunday school on the south side of Chicago, and there was this, this old man who came down to help out. And he had apparently helped out with the Sunday school like. This would have been uh, mid-1990s. And this guy had helped out with the Sunday school. He had to been 70. So when he was younger, so this was like three decades. So this is an old, old guy, and uh, um, I forgot his name. But anyways, he comes down, and, and we're, he's like, I would, I would like to teach the children about charity. I'm like, oh, great. You know, that sounds great. Okay, good. So he starts, he pulls out his King James Version Bible. I was like, oh, well, we'll see how this works out. Because at that point, I'm thinking, oh, hey, we can't use this language with children because they won't understand it. But little did I know. But um, he starts reading 1 Corinthians 13. I was like, wait a second, what, what is going on here? I've never heard this Bible passage before. <laughs> because cause I didn't realize it was uh, charity, which is very helpful. So charity is of the will. Love is of the will. And if we remember Heidelberg Theses number 28, which I think Pastor Bukes introduced way back when, you know, in January, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. So the understanding that charity in the Christian sense is something that is of the will and that actually these, these uh, of the will then starts to create or change that which is receiving such love. Um, so you can love in spite of you not feeling like it. That's, um, we'll just leave it at that. Um, which means then uh, love means more than liking. Romans chapter 5. It's a, it's a passage about how God loves us even though he doesn't like us. I mean, at, at that particular moment. Well. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. Um, the uh, uh, blah, 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 blah. you uh, a man will die for a righteous person. Oh my, it's in it's it's in that chapter. But Paul says, you know, it's it's easier to die for someone you like, basically, than someone you don't like. But God loved us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Okay. Um, oh, so practical. So love is pra- practiced through a, through a choice. So doing things that are um, helpful to create love. Uh, Stanley Hauerwas has a great little quote. The greatest threat to Christianity isn't atheism. It is sentimentality. Uh, if you think about what that means. We are very comfortable loving when it is sentimental just you know creates these feelings of love and but Harawas who's a theologian um, says that is that specifically speaking that is not Christian love love is is precisely the point where uh, you love um, in the face of, of evil 
And he, he gives a penultimate example, or penultimate, I don't know why I'm saying penultimate today. He gives an ultimate example where he, go, where he says, where parents are unwilling to let their children suffer for their beliefs. We believe that in order, uh, he says, what, what people have to understand is that when you love as a Christian loves, it actually, there's a price to be paid. And which is sacrifice, which is death. So, it, so that's that's the kind of love that Lewis is talking about. So, um, yeah. So, if you think about it too, though, from a, a perspective of growing up with the sentimental sort of love, it can easily produce cynicism. You only love because it makes you feel good. And of course, when you become cynical towards love, there's not much left in terms of relationship building. Yeah, because then it's just all about what you can get out of it. Holly. Yeah, without return. And I, I was thinking, I was thinking specifically of it was very hard to love my immediate neighbor, my real neighbor. Yep. <laughs> my neighbors, and um, mostly because I have no sentimentality toward her. Right. Um, but this book gave me actually something like I could do. I, I can do an action for her without worrying about the pitiful nature or the state of her affairs. Right. Her gratitude, you know, the hope that she will change. I can, I can just love her with action. That's right. Um, now, this is not easy. <laughs> um, and I think, so Lewis is talking abstractly, so when we apply this practically, uh, you know, well, actually, too, um, so when you do practice love, one of the hopes isn't necessarily, I will like this person. He says it really nicely. You might just like them less, or uh, you, you might dislike them a little less. I personally think that's really helpful for, as Holly, in those circumstances that Holly describes, and we all have them. A lot of times it's family, these people that we just don't have a great relationship with, and it's, we find it hard to love them because we think, hey, we're going to like them or we're going to be best friends with them. But maybe, realistically speaking, we still do acts of love, and by doing these acts of love, we just dislike them a little less. And that, that's, for a lot of people, that's, 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 that's good as it gets. Um, uh, in, in talking with the Siberians, one of the, one of the interesting things for them is, is a lot of the, the terrible things that happened to them over the decades under communism. And they, they, this, is, this is the best that they will think about with those who've killed their family members. And um, they, they have no illusions of ever liking these people. 
their hope is to just dislike them a little less. And for them, that is overwhelming for them to even think about. I mean, that's the embodiment on that level of what Christ did for them. So, and I think that's okay. I mean, because you, you can be civil with people. You know, I have people in my life who uh, I loved immensely, then I hated them, and now they're at the point they're just like someone walking down the street. I don't hate those people. But that's the extent, I think, of my future relationship with these people is that they are like if I walk down to Starbucks and I pass a couple people on the street, I don't, I don't want to kill them. I don't want to hate them. But they are just, that's them. And I, 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 I'm glad that I'm at that point in my life with some of these people. So, it's 1030, but we'll take these. So Martha and then Krista. Yeah, right. And this sort of thing where we're doing actions, we just have to remember that the result of the outcome is not ours to be concerned Right. It, the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it blows where it, where it goes away. John chapter 3. So we try, try to do the difficult thing, which is yeah, right. love whom, those whom we perceive to be unlovable. Yep. You know, or whatever. And then we just have to meet the rest of the ask that he forgive our attempts at doing it. That's right. And that's why, I, you know, of course, that's why the pride chapter is before all these. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, you know, it, it's, it's one of these things where, um, well, it's at the very end of the chapter, Lewis says that, you know, God's never wearied by our sinfulness towards him. And so the fact is, though, is that... Uh, it is wearisome, though. I mean, it's but he's just not overcome by it. I mean, dying on the cross is not, is a that's a wearisome thing. Bearing the burdens of other people's sins is a tough thing. It's hard, but it, it did not overcome him. I mean, he rose again. So we, when we love, it it's just never easy. It really shouldn't be. I'm just I'm, I'm just thankful for times that it is easy. That's the exception, not the norm. So, well, yeah, we should. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm teaching next week, so we got hope, and then we got a couple chapters on faith and stuff. We let's put it. I, yeah, I do want to talk about hope because, um, well, yeah, because we should. Okay, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.